Today we're continuing um, the series, Masters of the Craft, where, where Brian sits down with people really that uh, not only are inspiring to talk to, but also are, are truly masters of, of what they do. This week's episode is with Claire Keen. For the folks that don't know Claire Keen, Brian Keen kind of set up, well, not only know how you know Claire, but also kind of uh, the work that people have seen her do. I actually first met Claire uh, at Disney when I was working there on something. She's an illustrator who does children's books, um, some amazing children's books. She uh, writes and illustrates them and and also some just, science just illustrates them. A lot of film stuff, Disney visual uh, development stuff. Um, just beautiful work. Her work on Tangled is amazing. Couldn't couldn't be better at what she does. It's it, she, Her work is incredible. Her mind is incredible. She is a joy for me to talk to. And I, again, a person I feel very lucky to know. Just uh, just couldn't, again, couldn't be a sweeter human being. Anything we should look for that really stood out to you uh, with your interview with Claire? Yeah, she had some interesting things to say about creativity. She talks about a plant. You'll, you'll see. Um, I, I really found that intriguing. I've thought about it a lot since. We did her interview a while ago, but I've thought about it a lot since. Anyway, yeah, I think that that's... That's a good one to look for, but don't just look for that because there's there's gold all over the place there. So pay close attention. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by visual development artist and illustrator Claire Keene whose work is showcased in the beloved films Frozen, Wreck-It Ralph, Tangled, and Enchanted. In addition to illustrating a number of children's books, Claire is also the author and illustrator of the children's books Once Upon a Cloud and Little Big Girl. In the episode, Brian and Claire chat about the power of curiosity, how creatives develop consistent personal styles, and how she uses her own experiences and observations of the people around her to develop the character of Rapunzel. Now, I know that you have drawn forever, right? You've been an, an artist since essentially the day you were born. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. My parents said that the first drawing that I did was when I was 18 months old. 18 months old? Yeah, and that it was of my mom, and um, it was upside down, and I gave her a little pig nose and earrings. And <laughs> I, You know, I heard this story. Yeah. Isn't I, that? Okay. Yeah. So, okay, so you drew right away, and, and, and uh, your dad told me that you didn't talk for a while. Yeah. Like that you could draw. Yeah, and so what? So I didn't, I couldn't really talk until I was four, and they said that um, it was because those lines got switched. Like, at 18 months, normally a kid starts talking, but I started drawing, and so it kind of switched. And they said that, like, when I was four, I kind of, uh, when I started talking more, then I kind of stopped um, drawing as much. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. But, you know, it's interesting because I notice it too. Like when I'm working, like I can't, I can't hold a conversation when I'm drawing. Really? No. I mean, I think that's probably a lot of people are like that. And, um, but uh, I think it, it must be like two different parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I haven't really studied it at all. But, um, yeah, I can, I can listen, I can listen to a podcast or a book and get really into those while I'm drawing. 
Not writing though. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Weird. That's a different. That's a different thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I wonder about this genetic component because it goes back in your family quite a bit, this, this yeah. art artist thing, right? So did I hear that even maybe your great, because your grandfather was, was, a, was a, a cartoonist of some significance, mm-hmm. right? Your, now, did your great grandfather, was he well, some? When my granddad was really old, um, I asked him, I said, granddad, did your dad draw? And he was like, yeah, but he, he was a different type of drawer. I was like, oh, like how? And he was like, well, he designed um, machine parts, like train parts. I was like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Like, it is. And and in his mind, he wasn't like equating it as something. But I'm like, at that time, yeah, probably the type of job that an artist could get. Right. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's amazing to me, right? So... Do you think there's a genetic component or yeah. do you think it's, you do? No, I do because, um, because before I had kids, I thought that it was just, um, it was just kind of watching my parents or my dad um, and my granddad draw and like somehow being inspired by that. But watching my kids, when they were babies and like, I didn't have time to draw in front of my kids. Like I would do that when the kids were with the nanny and when I was with the kids, they were like on me and just like meeting me. And so I wasn't drawing in front of them, but both of them are just obsessed with drawing. Like they're really, really good at it. And the teachers would, um, their teachers would comment on like, oh, their Matisse is, is very, very good at drawing, or like she's she really enjoys drawing. She loves drawing a lot. And and they would say that without knowing that I was an artist in, in any way. And, right. And they would say the same thing about Rowan and um they're both known as the artists in their class. Really? Yeah. Um and so I think that it's I don't know. And your brother, your brother's also an artist, right? Yeah, my brother, and so is my cousin. Right. And I just, I don't know if it's really like the talent that gets passed down, but I think that it's the desire and like the, um, the enjoyment. Okay. That like, I can enjoy it. My kids can enjoy it. Somebody else might try it, and like, like I see other kids in the class. And they really don't enjoy drawing as much as my kids do. Mm-hmm. So it's just like we all have our different things that we gravitate towards. And I think that is what is um, genetic in a way. Sure. I, you know, I was at uh, the San Diego Comic-Con. This was years ago. And a friend of mine had a booth, this uh, guy named Dan Brereton. And Dan had done a lot of Batman stuff and, and uh, a lot of monster stuff. He does a lot of monster stuff, but he had done some Batman things. And so I was talking to to Dan. I was at his booth, but he had a lot of fans. And so you'd have to wait and then you'd get back in, you know. Anyway, so uh, this this fan came up and he had an accent, which I, at the time I couldn't quite peg. He didn't, he was kind of quiet and shy. And he said to my friend, Dan, I, I'd like to show you something. Dan said, okay. So it was this guy pulls out this this bust of uh, Batman, 
and it was gorgeous. It stopped the show. It was like just you could hear a pin drop at the San Diego Comic-Con. Right? <laughs> you could hear a pin drop. It was gorgeous. Um, it had it felt like a just a classical like sculpture that like it was crazy. And and uh, I was standing next to this older guy and everybody was talking. I said and I said something like, hey, this is pretty good. And the guy said, OK, the older guy, it's OK. He's like, he's my son. Oh, he first he said he was my he's my son. I go, he's pretty good. He goes, he's OK. I go, I think that's really good. He goes, it's all right. And I, I said, really? And he says, well, I'm a sculptor, too. And he said, my family, uh, we've been sculptors in Italy for generations. I was like, that's interesting, because I think everybody could see that in that one sculpture. I think everybody could see all the lessons throughout and when when somebody from Italy says we've done it for generations, they don't mean three, right? Yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 I really do think everybody knew somehow that they were seeing really the uh, the compiled work of all those generations in that bust. It was gorgeous. Wow. Yeah, it was gorgeous. So yeah, I, I again is that I don't know. In, in Europe, there's a lot of that kind of thing. So I don't know if that's talent or just passing on a skill set. I don't really know. But well, I think the talent comes afterwards. I think the talent comes with the with all the hard work that goes into it. But you only do that hard work because you love it and you're enjoying it. Yeah. And so you have like all that time when you're a kid just like spending hours and hours drawing. And if you don't enjoy it, then you're not going to be spending that time doing it yeah I, and i think that's where the talent starts um accumulating sure that makes sense well i always say that that talent is what hard work looks like from the other side the other side <laughs> yeah right yeah. wow you're so talented it's like you have no idea all of the hours it took you know yeah. to get to this point where you it looks effortless to you um yeah. and also like that's that's kind of the whole you're not going to put in those hours unless you're enjoying it yeah i and think that's true if you're not enjoying it, um, even even kind of like what we were talking about trauma before, of like the pain of going through something, like it's painful, but you still appreciate it and you kind of love it. Yeah. And like when you're kind of beating your head up against something, um, it sucks. But at the same time, you love it because you know you're like going towards something. Yeah. I always tell people that um, you have to love this enough to be bad at it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that, you know, there are some things that you try, there are things I've tried and I'm like, you know, I'm like, you know what, this is hard and I don't care enough. I'm yeah. not enjoying it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I get, but now the, the cool thing is knowing that because I just go, that's why I can't do that. I don't want to spend the time doing it. I, you know, like yeah. if I want, if I wanted to spend the time doing it, I guess I could do it. I, try? yeah. And it, it makes it easier to let that stuff go, actually. Yeah. Like, oh, I can't play a musical instrument. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to practice. I don't want to do that. Yeah, it's where you th- put your priorities. Yeah, I have other things I'd rather do. You know, <laughs> you know, and I know that. Yeah. So, and that might be not doing anything, but I'd rather do that than build up calluses on my fingers trying to figure out how to play this string instrument or whatever. Yeah. So you were drawing from a, an early age, and did you ever? consider doing anything else yeah did you 
Yeah, I really want to be a singer. I never really? wanted to be a bar. Like, really? Yeah, I, I just was like, oh, that's like my dad's thing. Like, but I'm gonna be a famous pop singer. Okay. <laughs> All right. And um, there's still time. Yeah. And and it kind of it kind of goes back to that idea about where your priorities lie. It's just like at one point, I had to make the the decision because, well. I mean, in high school, I, I sang all throughout high school. And, and oh, wow. I, um, I actually wanted to um, go to the Royal Academy of Music for college. And, and I auditioned there, and I auditioned. Wow. And I, I was very, like, in my head about, like, life. So I was like, well, I'm going to go to London and study opera. And, um, and that's it. And I only want to go to either the Trinity College of Music, Royal Academy of Music in Birmingham or something. And they're like the top three probably in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I was 17 and I get to these auditions and I'm looking at them like, well, four years younger than most people trying to do this. And because it, their, their schooling system is different. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that's where I want to go to college. I don't want to do anything else. And, and I didn't get in. Uh -huh. and, and then I was like, shoot, I have to do something wrong. I don't want to go back to America because I was living in Paris. And I, was mm -hmm. like, I don't want to go back to America yet. Um, you know, I, 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 can, I draw and I have all these drawings that I could put together in a portfolio. And so I put together a portfolio and I sent it to Parsons School of Design in Paris. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. um, because, uh, because they had a branch in Paris and I didn't want to leave Paris because, or I didn't want to leave Europe because I okay. like, I still don't speak French well enough because I'd lived there for two years. And I was like, I can't go back to America. I'm not speaking French well. And so, um, so I ended up staying and going to Parsons for one year and um, realizing, because I was thinking, okay, well, I, I want to do uh, fashion design because uh, I loved drawing dresses, girls mm -hmm. in these dresses and stuff when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then when I was there, I realized, actually, I don't care so much about the clothes. It's more about, like, the people underneath the clothes. Uh-huh. And so then I started thinking more about illustration and I realized, well, I, I don't know if this is the right school for illustration and like getting yeah. the basic drawing uh, skills. And so uh, I talked to my dad about it and he ended up asking one of his coworkers in Paris about a, a good art school in Paris. And, um, and he said, uh, ESAG, which is the school that I ended up going to. And so I was like, sure, okay, I'll go. And it turned out, it, it was like this militant art school where they would rip up people's drawings. And oh, say, really? Oh, who did this shit? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. yeah. Or, or then they would be like, whoever did this will end up in the, uh, at the Mickey house drawing Mickeys all day. <laughs> <laughs> anything animation or any any really yeah anything american they're very like Mah. um this sounds very french like yeah, this very, the very, yeah 
it was it was the ultimate French experience. So it I, sounds I, like it. <laughs> so I went from going to these American schools in Paris where it was kind of like rosy and just kind of living the Woody Allen experience of Paris <laughs> and uh-huh. gone straight into like, oh God. <laughs> This <laughs> is really wow. Um, but it was it was amazing, and I made amazing friends, and and I ended up it, it was a five year school because you have to do this preparatory year first, and that's where I ended up um, doing illustration. Um, I, I want to stop for a second on this uh, this amazing and and horrifying experience because I think they often go together. Yeah. You know, when people are younger, they think, well, this is, but it's strange how they go together, yeah. how they often, That's a good point. you know, where you're like going through something awful and you're like, this is the most, you, you couldn't imagine a worse thing. And then in hindsight, you're like, that was the coolest thing in the world. And it's really strange how that happens. Yeah. Um, I but think, it does. I think about like some of my best memories ever in my life. I think about coming out of um, school, like at on a Friday night, and it being like bitter cold, bitter like mm-hmm. just so cold, and I'm holding my my portfolio case, and just going walking down Saint Germain to go go to a restaurant. Finally, after a, a week of just like intense uh, intense working, and just like. Oh, and that that memory of walking down the street bitterly cold and just like trying to get to the restaurant where it's going to be warm uh-huh. it's the best memories i have and it's just like that's that's so weird i mean there were some beautiful moments in paris of like sitting on the cafes in the springtime with like my favorite memories are the ones that are just like oh. <laughs> it's it's really it's an interesting thing but it's true or they're Often they're also inconsequential memories, like just weird little things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was um, at when, when my brother died at the eulogy, I, one of the things I talked about was what came back to me after he died were, it were small, small moments, not big events, not the big, the thing we did that was huge or the thing he did, but just teeny everyday little things that you, uh, take for granted became uh, really precious. Mm, yeah, it was it was, uh, it was surprising to me, but um, I've noticed that uh, I didn't notice it consciously before that, but I but I had noticed it before that. Um, but I became conscious of it then, and it's. Um, and have you noticed that it changes the way that you interact with your daily life? Yes. Um, Yes, not all of that is good, um, because well, I shouldn't say that. It, it again, it's all wrapped up together. Um, I pay attention to life as I'm as I'm living it in a way that I didn't before. I uh, pay attention to people differently. Um, because it's a strange thing when somebody is a constant in your life and then they're not there anymore. It's, yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's such an, it's a very human experience. Everybody you live long enough. Everybody has that experience. It's nothing 
unusual, but it feels completely unusual. Like it's never happened to anybody before. And uh, at least in our culture, we ignore the possibility of death most of the time and don't deal with it. And so it comes as a shock every single time. <laughs> and so um, I'm, I'm more aware that um, whenever I see somebody, maybe I won't see them again. That's bad because that's always in the back of my head, but it's also good because I'm paying attention in a, a very specific way. Um, and I had a friend who was older. He was 80 when I met him and in his nineties when he died. And, and, uh, he, he also taught me that because when I met him, he was already in his eighties and I thought, well, I don't know how long I'm going to know this person. And so I paid very close attention every time I got to spend a moment with him. So, um, so that, and that was before my brother had, my brother died. So, um, maybe I was practiced in it there a little bit, but that, that I see changed. And so there, there's some good things about that. And also the, also I think as a creative person, it, it makes you more human when you experience things that every other human experiences. Does that make sense? You, you, I felt like, I remember after my dad died and I was talking to a friend whose dad died a little while after like six months or something afterwards. And we were talking about it and he, both of us said the same thing that it, it made you feel like a, like a, you were in a big, you wouldn't want to be in this club, but in a big club of people who understand that feeling and that it was the universal basically, or mostly universal human experience that that happened and that you, have to deal with it and um, move on and move through it. And, and um, I think it probably made me a better writer, um, a better storyteller because I connected differently to those experiences. It's like, I, I was just talking about this, but I had a friend when he was going through his divorce, he said, it's interesting because when you say to people, Oh, I'm getting a divorce. He said that people who haven't been through it say, Oh, that's too bad. People who have been through it say, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> there was a difference. And I think that um, certain human experiences give you a depth that you couldn't otherwise get. Yeah. Um, you know? That's yeah. That joy in the pain comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Realizing like you're starting to really live like the the depth of the human experience. And so, what what is it that you um, learned art wise? And also, did you feel? Did you you have a you have a, a different experience than than most people? I would say, or many people I knew who when they were in art school did you feel like you had a head start or did you feel like you had a lot of stuff you had to unlearn or did you feel how did, how did the, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I thought that I had a head start, like really. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then I get into the school and they just like beat that out of me. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, I've been drawing since I was 18 months and they're like, no. <laughs> why they made us all do a preparation year no matter like how like sure you had done um like you, a like a foundation year kind of yeah 
And because they wanted to just beat out anything that was, that you had learned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so growing up with an animator dad, you learn to draw in like these big, simple shapes in order to kind of get through, um, in order to, to get to the emotion of the, of the pose really easily. Right. And so you kind of like use these kind of pre uh, predetermined shapes in your head. Um, and it's great for emoting and like figuring out like how to like pose and like think and like feel with the character. Um, but what they were teaching at that school was observation okay. and really looking very closely at what are those shapes that you're looking at. And so I had to really kind of put, put that back in my mind and uh, just like kind of take that out. And uh, uh, one of the teachers told me, and she was great. She was really great, Colette. And she came to me and she said, I know that you've been drawing for a very long time and you, but you need to understand that you have to start looking at what you're drawing in a different way um, and not use these premeditated ideas about what you're seeing, but really look at what you're seeing and draw it. One of the first um, lessons that they had us do in that class uh, was um, we were just sitting at our desks and nobody had iPhones at that time. And uh, they said, okay, um, I want you guys to draw an elephant. <laughs> and so you try to draw an elephant and you're like, ugh, <laughs> there's a trunk. And, and, you, and they really illustrated in that moment how much you really don't know about the things that you think that you know. Um, yeah, an illustrator friend said to me one time exactly that. He said, um, he goes, you know what a fire hydrant looks like, right? I said, yeah. He goes, you, you know, right? He says, until you try to draw one, then you have no idea. You're like, does it have, where are the bolts and how does it, yeah. it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, it's, I think we have very fuzzy, we have a fuzzy idea of what an elephant is and that's fine again, until you need to illustrate it and then it's a different thing. Like you have yeah. no idea how it works uh, or what it's, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's, so is that, that's one of the things you learned there was how yeah, to see. That was the main thing for the drawing part. And then, um, and then throughout the years after that, um, it actually wasn't a school for illustration. They didn't place very much importance on illustration actually. Hmm. They're really training um, people to be art directors for magazines. Really? And so they had a lot of, um, a, they were placing a lot of importance on typography and photography. And um, and so I went through, the, and you couldn't choose your classes, so you, you just went through all of it together. And so that was interesting because I would have never chosen typography. Um, I didn't even know what it was. I so typography is really like the design of fonts and how they're placed on a page. And I, I would have never thought about that stuff. Um, and, and I'm really glad that I had done that because I really think about it a lot as I'm 
um, illustrating my books now. Uh, where I'm going to place the text, what type of text I'm going to use, and when I draw my my fonts, I, I, I'm conscious of it. I mean, I was awful. I was awful at school in typography. I was like the worst. Like there were lots of tears. <laughs> sure. But, but now I understand it. But that's all really good. Um, this is, I think, it might be in Steve Martin's book. It's somewhere Steve Martin talks about this. When he was first starting to sort of get famous and he was on the tonight show with Johnny Carson and uh, just before a commercial break or something, Johnny Carson that made a joke and then he did a Donald duck voice. He could do a really good Donald duck impression. So he did it. Then during the commercial break, they went to commercial during the commercial break. He leans over to Steve Martin and he says, uh, you'll use everything you've ever learned in this business. You'll use everything you've ever learned. So that was just something he knew how to do and he could pull it out when he needed it. And I found that to be true across the board. If you do any kind, maybe it's true outside of creative work. I, luckily, yeah. I haven't done much of that. But, but when you're not doing, um, when you are doing creative work, it's amazing what you can bring in that will help you, even if it seems at first unrelated. Yeah. Right? Um, it, it, it teaches you how to sometimes see differently, process information differently. Uh, you, you know, if you, um, I don't know how long I've been taking pictures now, but um, I took pictures as a kid. I wanted to take a, to take a film class in, um, in uh, seventh grade, eighth grade. And they, they required that you take a photography class. And I didn't want to do that because they weren't pictures that moved. And I only cared about things that moved. Although I, I was fascinated by photography and I, I would look at um, old life magazines and the photography and the composition and all of that. I just didn't do it. Then in order to relax several years ago now, I don't know, maybe it's a, maybe it could be a decade or something. I decided that I was going to take it up, take up photography. And what was it? Because I thought uh, I was actually, I was directing a commercial one time and this, producer <laughs> kept questioning every all my camera placements and because he was questioning them I started to question them and so I thought you know what I'm just going to take pictures and concentrate on light and composition so that if I'm in a position where I'm directing again again I will know that that's the place and I will know why that that's the place and I want it to be an automatic process I don't want to have to think about it I want to be able to think on my feet so that was one of the reasons that I started taking pictures. And but what I found was I started to see differently. After a while, I started to see differently, period. I see pictures all the time I don't take. Oh, look at the way the light's doing this. And look at the way. And I started to observe differently. And that bleeds into my other aspects of creativity in ways that I can't quite define, but I know it impacts them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and I, I think that... Um, what I have found when I'm dealing with a, a younger person or a less experienced person, they have a hard time doing anything that is not directly related to the thing they want to do. Yeah. You know, uh, and they think that, well, that's a waste of time. I want to do this thing. And, uh, but it's interesting to hear you talk about typography because I'm sure you probably, in fact, there was a, um, a comic book artist, again, at the San Diego Comic-Con. 
And he was kind of known for these pinups that he would do and these covers that he would do. And I heard him talking to somebody, a fan once, and he, and he showed them, he goes, well, he says, he goes, I use letters to compose my figures. He says, they're already really nicely designed, a letter. He goes, and so he would pick out, he'd show a cover and somebody would be posed in a certain way and he'd say, see, this is a K. And he would say, this is an R. And he, right? So he was thinking about letters that way. And he made these really dynamic covers oh, for yeah. comics. Letters have to be very clear. Right. Really striking silhouettes. And he's like, no, just use letters. That was his advice to this younger person. Right. So sometimes people don't understand that it doesn't have to be directly related. And sometimes they can seem like they're not related at all and still inform each other. It's a it's a really interesting thing that I I, I wish it was easier to explain to somebody who's younger um, yeah. that you don't waste any time. Difficult to um, get into it. I mean, it's kind of going back to that enjoyment of like, if you're not enjoying it, how do you know if you're supposed to be doing it? Right, right. Maybe the question really isn't that one. It's really about how do you find the enjoyment in doing the thing that you really want to do? I feel like right. that's the question that I'm kind of faced with throughout my whole life and I'm starting to to really kind of appreciate that question in a big way and, and see that there's so much transformation in that. In, and learning how to appreciate what I wasn't able to appreciate. As you get older, the, the sad thing is you say, boy, I wish I had, had known. And then you see somebody younger and you, and you, and you basically say, I'm from the future. Right. <laughs> right. You're going to want to pay attention to this. Yeah. And, and, and your past self says, I don't think I need to listen to that. It's like, it's like no, really invest in Microsoft. I'm telling you, it's like, I've never heard of it. It's like, don't worry. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a really hard thing to to um, to see that, but it but I don't know. Maybe it's just a symptom of age that you don't understand when you're young. It's a symptom of youth that you but don't you understand. And I think that that's kind of the whole part of learning how important it is is understanding and seeing like oh, having that realization like oh. I, I didn't get that before. Now I'm starting to get it. And right. then that can seep into your current life and say like, well, what, what is it that I'm not getting now? Right. Like every phase that we go through, even if we look back and like, that was the stupidest decision I kept making. You have to go through those phases. And so to have some sort of compassion for yourself or for younger people who are still in that phase of like, I just want to draw monkeys. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I don't want to draw anything else. And she's like, okay, then you're in your monkey face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, here's, here's the strategy I figured out. So uh, when, when my niece was uh, young, I would say to her, um, I would have advice for her. And I would say, she's too young for this advice. So I would stop her and I would look her in the eye and I would say, I'm not talking to you right now. I'm talking to the 30 year old version of you. <laughs> Remember this. 
<laughs> she would remember it. She's really good at that kind of thing. She would remember it. So eventually, I, I hope when she's 30, some of that stuff will come back. It's like, Brian told me this. Like, yeah. So I, I knew she couldn't handle it, but I'm like, well, I have to tell it to her. Who knows if I'm going to be around? So I'm going to tell her now and she can hold on to it until she needs it. Yeah. Um, I think that those things like that you're not ready to hear, like you get like you get what you need at that time, even though you don't you don't fully understand it as a thirty year old. You understand it in this way, in a different way, and those things ultimately lead up to one day understanding it in the thirty year old way. Yeah, it's I got a a, a letter from a a, a fan yesterday, and and. He was asking a question about something, and I and I said I said, "Oh, you, okay." So to answer your question, and I answered the question. I said, "You should watch the movie City Slickers," with this in mind. And then he said, "Well, I've seen City Slickers. This happens a lot." I'm like, "Yeah, I understand that. It doesn't matter." You, I, I said, "Watch it with this in mind." Now you have a different set of eyes. Watch it through this prism now. And and I've noticed that um, even as people get older. They, they have a younger version of themselves and sometimes they behave like the younger version of like now, but you're an older, wider, wiser person now, right? Now go look at it and see what you see. Um, actually, I've noticed it's really hard to get people to revisit things they think they, they've dealt with. Yeah. Like, no, go, go revisit that and see what that's like now. Like, if you were in a typography class right now, yeah. it would feel different. I really think so. Yeah. How could it not? Right. You, you have a whole, uh, you know, a bunch of years between then and now where you can say, oh, no, this is really useful um, and it'll be useful and useful in ways I can't predict. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. you didn't know you were going to do children's books. Right. Um, Did you? But I mean, it wasn't that far off of like where my <laughs> direction was. Um, but I, I don't think that I really fully understood how how it would affect how I might decide to, to draw something. Right. But going back to the typography thing, I have to say that so there was this teacher that was awful. Awful, awful, awful. Uh-huh. She, she was like she was doing Swiss typography and um, the way that she she taught was just like you guys all suck. You're all doing it wrong. Um, God, don't you understand? And she gets so frustrated that nobody understood. And so I just saw it like I thought it would be as like the boring, driest uh, thing that somebody could do. And then we went, we got a, another teacher who took us to um, an exhibition um, this typography exhibition, and there was these posters from this guy from Cal Arts. His name is Michael Worthington. Worthington in French, they say Worthington, but in Michael Worthington, who is a, a teacher at Cal Arts, actually, and he was—he had his stuff exhibited at this exhibition, and it was the first time I, I saw like like handwritten type, and just like the joy was there it was just like oh my gosh this is so much fun i never knew that this this whole category of uh an art could actually be fun because clearly this guy is having a blast doing it and it, it was 
was like, oh, there's there's a different way to approach this thing. Um, and I don't know, but I guess that kind of is kind of stuck with me too, which is like that that enjoyment piece, like sure, two ways of doing things. There's like the browbeating and like, ah, you're awful at this, awful, awful. <laughs> or yeah. there's like the curiosity and like letting yourself kind of play in this space it will bring much broader results. How do you think it sounds like that was um, that experience was um, it has broader implications about how you think and how you approach things. Is that true? Do you, do you come away from an experience like that saying, I know this doesn't seem like fun now, but maybe I can find the fun in it. Or, you know, like if you have an, an assignment, um, there's an interesting thing when you have when you're doing art to order. You know what I mean? What I mean is, um, like you know, somebody asked me to write these books, and and uh, so I'm like, okay. But before that, I wrote books and looked for publishers. Now they're saying, "Hey, here's some money. Write a book." And I was like, "I what? I huh?" Right. Yeah. So now I have to find a way to get into that space to generate like for the, if for some reason I had this fantasy that, you know, I'd write a screenplay and they'd go great. And, you know, or I'd write this and they'd go great. And it would go, I didn't think about sometimes it's just an assignment, right? Yeah. Just an assignment. Um, and you have to treat it the same way you would treat, the thing you would do for yourself. Yeah. And you have to find a way into the material sometimes. Yeah. Or else it's just painful and boring and dry. Yeah. So you have to find a way in and are there, are there, are there, I guess the typography thing kind of reminded me of like the, Oh, you could do it this way. Like how do you, when you have an assignment, how do you find your way into that assignment? Um, well, I, I kind of, my first thing is I like, let's say it's a, it's a manuscript that comes my way and I, um, and I'm asked to illustrate it. Um, the first thing I do is read the manuscript and, and try to imagine that the parts, the images that come to mind that I'm kind of excited about. Okay. And, um, and then every single time there's going to be like, oh no, in my head, no, it has to be this way. Yeah. Well, it's just, ah, just, yeah, get it. Uh, like that, um, that kind of hard, um, judgmental part of me needs mm -hmm. to take the back seat and just be like, no, 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 right now I'm just figuring out what is it that's calling to me that I really am kind of excited about drawing. And maybe that will change. Maybe sometimes I'm like really excited about drawing some super cliche thing. 
And once I get into it, I realize, oh, actually, it feels cliche. And then I can use some of that, like, judgmental part of me to kind of be like, oh, well, maybe maybe you want to try it this way because the character is thinking this and stuff like that. So I feel like in the very beginning, I really do just kind of let myself sink into what it is that's, like, calling to me. Because that's the only way that I'll get to the point where I can listen to the judgmental piece of me and kind okay. of that Because otherwise, if it's all just the judgmental, like, oh, no, the character has to be, like, front and center and be like, then I'm going to be like, oh, that's boring. And, <laughs> and so then I just start getting really, um, like, bored with with the project and I'll probably start procrastinating on it. <laughs> then it's no fun. Right. But I can just like let myself really find, um, in my mind, the, the images that kind of seem like fun to draw. Then, um, then I can get to the point where I can invite back in that like critical part. Mm-hmm. Like, it would have been nice in my uh, typography experience had I had that teacher first who brought us to the exhibition to have him be there to in the beginning to kind of like show us all that this could be and then have the, the awful teacher come in afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then she could kind of like show us um, the rules. You know what? I wonder about that. There was an appreciation you had that maybe you had partially because you had this harsher experience, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I you know, the Michael Worthington stuff with such like awe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so maybe it worked out the way it was supposed to. Yeah. You know? That's- yeah, and, and also everything works out exactly the way it's supposed to work out. So yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you mean it doesn't have to? Okay, right. You know, you know, it could be this. You know, so you had a comparison. You know, uh, that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So maybe that's why. I don't know. I so I'm curious about how much. You know, when you're a creative person, you bring yourself to a project, even if it's an assignment, right? You, if, if, they've, if they've done their work in hiring you, they, they hire you because you do what you do, right? <laughs> you know? Uh, unfortunately, they don't always do that. They want you to be somebody else. And you're like, I, I'm not someone else. You should probably, you should have hired someone else. Um, but, but if they do their jobs, then they, 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 they cast you, essentially. But it's still an assignment. And what I have found often is, uh, like when I'm doing comics, it has that happened for a while, but an artist will decide, I want to do this instead of that. And it has an impact on the story. They don't think about that because they want to draw monkeys, like you said, right? Um, and it's like, well, okay, but you drew monkeys and now I have to change my story because you drew monkeys. But there's a balance, right? There's a there's a, yes, bring yourself to the table, but also do the job. How yeah. do you find that balance? Um, I think it really is integrating 
those two sides of your psyche of just like, okay, this is, this is the creative part of like what I want to do. Right. This is what's being asked of me. Where do those two actually start having a conversation rather than just a fight? <laughs> right. And so, and what I've noticed so much, especially in illustration, is that there's always a middle ground. There's always, and it, it doesn't, it, that they, those two sides actually help each other. In most cases, um, like a lot of times I'll get um, a note, or maybe there will be a, an, a pre-existing art note, and I'm like, oh, that sucks, I don't want to do that, I just want to do this, but then I'm like forced to like interact with the person who wrote the note or something. And so I'm like, okay, okay I can't just be like, that sucks. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I have to like take a step back and like compose my email and then uh, really thinking about it. Like then, then those things I realize, oh, well maybe, maybe if I um, put that note and kind of like helped make my idea better maybe actually my idea was that person's idea and actually we're saying the same thing and <laughs> there's like this magical thing that happens when when those two sides can kind of start um interacting mm -hmm. rather than being um oppositional sure you you have uh an amazing range. Like it, it's, it, it's amazing what you're able to do. Um, if, if you, if you just have stuff that almost looks like it wasn't from the same person. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't like, know. Like, I'm like, how can anybody say that I have a style? Because I don't really. No, you, you don't. And uh, I mean, or you have several styles. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But there's an interesting, how is that happening that you have so much range? Most people have, they do what they do. Um, but you can be, um, even in the stuff I've seen, uh, the stuff you did for, uh, for Rapunzel, for Tangle, there's vastly different kinds of, art that you did for that, right? Art for the movie, for the movie itself is the one thing, but the, 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 um, the pre-vis stuff and the yeah. visual development stuff that you did, um, a, lo a lot of that is very different, very um, uh, painted and illustrative and, you know, and then other stuff, the, the stuff that Rapunzel actually paints on her walls is, is flat and, and, and graphic. And, and, and so even within that one world, you were doing vastly different things. And, and so what, where does that come from? Why are you able to do that? How does that happen? Where does that come from? Do you know? Um, I do know. It, it, it's about um, what's being asked of me. And, and it is really that, that conversation uh, between those two parts of me. I feel like every story has a style or every assignment has a, a specific style that you, I kind of want it to be, mm -hmm. or um, 
like for Tangled in particular, what you're talking about was like these Rembrandt inspired pieces that I was doing. Yeah, they're beautiful. Thank you. And I was really inspired by Rembrandt and um, they had been talking about wanting to have like a lot of stuff in shadows and just Rembrandt felt like, oh, that makes sense. And it just really called to me. And, um, and I really wanted to see what the characters would look like in that style. And so um, I set out to figure that out, like try to see like, oh, what if this movie actually looked like a Rembrandt painting? And, um, and so I kind of like gave myself that assignment and okay. maybe the pro producers were like, uh, we really just wanted a dress design. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. And, and so I was kind of like in that world. And then at the same time, like my dad kept saying, he's like, I want, I really want you to work on Rapunzel's mural paintings. I'm like, okay. Yeah. And he's like, and I want them to be, um, he was really inspired by Chagall. I can look at the Chagall stuff. And like, uh, I don't get it. Like, I just, it just felt, um, it felt like a kid's drawing. And I was just like, I, I couldn't find the, the enjoyment in it. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the more I looked at it, I just kind of went through it and went through it and went through it and started then realizing that there was like this airiness to it. Like, like the characters had like these poses that were really um, dreamlike. And that was what I was like, oh, I love that dreamlike feel. And I get that part of the inspiration that my dad was trying to get. And he kept talking about like lots of color and I'm like, oh, that just sounds so garish. Just, <laughs> and um, at the same time, I was really into Charlie Harper um, and just loving how he would do like these like interlocking shapes and stuff. There's a lot of birds and things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, biology books. Yeah. Character, the, the drawings were kind of interconnected. I loved those. And and so I just kind of started one by one, like kind of putting all of those inspirations together and realizing, oh, I can do like the, a wall full of color, but maybe I can do it so that it like, is like a gradation of color so that it's not like super garish, but you still get all that color. Um, that it's not like blue next to red, like that, but it's more kind of, um, it was also supposed to be in the background of many of the shots. Right. And so then I, uh, so I chose uh, poses that felt like Chagall poses, kind of dreamy, like, and uh, chose shapes that felt like a Charlie Harper kind of graphic shapes. And, um, and, and the color, I just kind of like had this gradation kind of rainbow type feeling in mind, um, that went throughout the, the shapes. Um, so it was kind of like, 
trying to answer all of those like different inspirations kind of created this own style that has nothing to do with Rembrandt stuff. But right. uh, it, it, it just, it answered that, that need that my dad was asking for. And right. Rembrandt stuff answered the other need of wanting to see what it would look like as a Rembrandt paint. Sure. It sounds like you are allowing, and this is a, a thing I see, um, I see the opposite often. You are allowing the material um, to dictate what you do, yeah. right? To, you're allowing the material to drive instead of imposing something on it, Yeah. right? Even to say, well, it's going to be in the background of a lot of shots. Now you're thinking about the practicality, the practicality of it, right? So um, often I find that uh, people will create in a vacuum. They will do a thing because they like the way that thing is without thinking about the bigger picture and how it's going to fit into the rest of the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so they often think that the criticism, if you give them criticism, is about the thing itself rather than how it fits into the whole. Um, I find, for instance, when I, when I was working with uh, university students, I found that they all uh, drew the same way, essentially. Uh, they were all inspired by anime and, uh, and manga. And they, would, they, they wouldn't venture outside. Like, there's other artists out there, to, you know, and they wouldn't. I'd try to steer them in this direction or that one, and they were not interested in those other influences. And so they all sort of drew the same way and they would, they would impose that style on everything instead of letting the thing itself define what the style should be. Um, and I find that that's a, that's a really hard thing to teach people to not impose your thing on it, but to let yourself come out of the material, find the you in it and bring it out. Yeah, well, it's 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 not easy because it really does kind of go back to that enjoyment piece. It's like, well, how do you force yourself to enjoy something that you don't enjoy? Right. Or that you've convinced yourself that you don't enjoy because that was the other thing. It's like with the Chagall stuff, I had convinced myself that I wasn't into it. Yeah. Right. And same with Matisse and same with Picasso. Like, it's, it's a ton of artists like that. Like, over the years, I thought I didn't like something and now I like it. And, um, and just, I guess, I don't know how you convince somebody to do that, but I do think that it comes with maturity. Um, mm. Maybe mm -hmm. trusting, trusting that that um, like we were saying earlier that uh, that we all go through the phases that are necessary at that moment until we learn our lessons for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I, I, I talked to uh, Frank Oz about uh, this, about these processes. And we, we have this ongoing thing about, I, I say he starts with a blank page. Now I'm speaking specifically of, of, of the puppeteering stuff. I'm not his directing stuff or his acting, but, but I say, I'm telling, I like, you start with a blank page and it's like, no, I don't. There's a, there's a, there's a puppet, there's a thing. And I'm like, yeah, 
But if I pick up a puppet, it doesn't become Cookie Monster. It doesn't become Bert or Yoda or whatever. And he talked about the creation of Bert, and he said, well, Bert is a boring puppet. He's like, Ernie's got hands, Bert's got little rods and stuff, and uh, he's a boring puppet. And he didn't know what to do with it. And then he realized, well, what if I make him the most boring person? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, so his favorite color is gray. And, you know, he's just the most boring person. And that's how, so Bert comes completely out of, um, he's a boring puppet. I'll go with it instead of how do I make this puppet more interesting? Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Isn't it? If, if, if you were to try to, then you, you try to fight against it, then it just, it doesn't work. It's difficult, and then it doesn't work even more. Like, right, right, right. But if you just go, this is what it is, I'll just do this. Uh, and then you come up with Bert, who is kind of an amazing character. And when you know the creation of that character and how he, like, the challenge was, this is boring, how to make it interesting. And then to go, no, I'm just going to go with it. Like, that's a kind of bravery, too, that um, I don't think a lot of people would have. Um, that truly is like the essence, like the whole point of creativity, like um, the creative spirit is in that and being able to adapt. Yeah. Without that, um, you're not being creative. You're yeah. on autopilot. I think that's true. I think that the word creativity is a problem. Creativity, in a way, is like um, it's being open. It doesn't usually come. You know, sometimes it's like an antenna or it's like a um, when you're doing it right, it doesn't seem to be coming from you. You know that feeling I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. where it seems to be coming from someplace else. And uh, it's because you're just open to whatever this thing wants to be. Yeah. And it sort of tells you what it wants to be. And that's sort of at the height of creativity. You don't feel like you're creating. Yeah. And it's actually when you, you're struggling um, is when you're being creative. That's actually harder. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, um, and it seems like you're pulling teeth, but when you just open yourself to listen to what this thing wants to be and just get out of the way. Yeah, loudly. Like, and so you have to kind of dig for it. Sometimes yeah. It is a little bit of a dig and hard work. That's true. Um, I've been thinking about creativity just as like, as a life force. Mm -hmm. Recently I did this little cartoon about this little tomato plant um, with its roots searching for water. Um, it's based off this um, tomato plant that I saw on the freeway on my way to work like 10 years ago. And every day I would see this little man growing and growing and every, it, just like right in the middle of the freeway, like on the, on the side. And there was no water around. Every day it would get bigger and bigger, and then these little tomatoes were there. And it, they grew into, like, full-on tomatoes. Uh -huh. 
that is just amazing and so ingenious that just naturally, just naturally, like a, a tomato plant does not have like cognitive function that we know of, right. uh, but it just naturally knows how to search for water and to grow. And so it goes down, doesn't find water there. So it, it starts creating a, a, a route to go somewhere else and look for water there. And, and the whole thing, and so it, it creates this, um, this structure of roots that end up finding water. But for me, that is the creative process. Like that, that it like totally encapsulates the creative process in that you're searching for something. It doesn't work over here. So that's why you go over there. And, and it's, it's ingenuity and perseverance. And all of that is inside of us as a creative living being. Um, that's I, a great. That's a great way to think of it. That's, that's a really great way to think of it. I think that's really insightful. I actually like the word creative because it really does use that word create. And when I think about humanity, that we've been creating. Right. You've changed my mind. <laughs> you, you, you have changed my mind. Yeah, uh, yeah no, that's, that makes perfect sense to me. That's great. Um, so... When you are talking to people who are um, just starting or interested, um, beginning their careers, and asking you questions, first of all, what are the kinds of questions you get? I get very specific kinds of questions. Yeah, so what are the questions that you get? Um, and what are the... Um, you sound a little bit more forgiving than I am in a lot of ways because you'll be like, well, that's the stage they're in. And I more like the, your French typography teacher. <laughs> so, um, but um, what are the pitfalls or mistakes you see people maybe falling into on a, a regular basis? I see those kinds of things. Uh, so, you know, those were a lot of questions, but you get the general idea. So, so what are the kinds of things that people ask you? when they're starting? Um, well, they want, the question that I get a lot that surprises me is um, how, how do I find my style? Oh, right. Not me, but like how no. does one find their style? Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's interesting to me that it's such a, um, such a recurring question for people. It is. I, I know that question, yeah. And it's kind of a frustrating answer because, uh, but also I think a very positive and uplifting one, but it's frustrating because it's not obvious to them already that they feel like they need to have a specific style that is external of them. Right. That's achieve something um, rather than just letting themselves come through in what they're doing. Um, but then at the same time, like very practically speaking, there are times when you have to do a specific style and you have to figure that out. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
was. So, but I, that's not generally what the question is. The question no. is usually about how do I find my style? And I guess that is a, a valid question because, um, because if you're not, if you feel like you haven't found yourself, probably because you've been getting in the way of yeah. finding your style. You're, you haven't been just, you haven't let, been letting yourself enjoy what you're doing. When I started out, I had that same question also. I questioned that all the time because I saw myself doing all these different, I put together my portfolio and I'd, I'd see like the Rembrandt pieces and then like, some Charlie Harper inspired stuff, and like, ugh. like, it looks like four different people did this, <laughs> um, and and I didn't see it as a quality, um, right? But then, and then I'd be really kind of intrigued when people would be like, I saw that thing uh, online, and I knew instantly that it was yours, and like, how could you know that? Like, and then and then talking with the people, then I realized, oh, there's like some sort of something about me that's coming through all of these different techniques that I'm using. Mm -hmm. The technique that you're using really doesn't matter. That as long as you yourself are enjoying what you're doing and really living it, your unique, your uniqueness will come through no matter what the technique is. Um, you know, um, there are a couple of interesting definitions of style. So uh, my friend August Wilson said, style is nothing except keeping the same idea from the beginning to the end, which I thought is a really interesting definition of style. Yeah. Um, because that means it can change, right? <laughs> According to what you're doing, yeah. right? But you are keeping the same idea from the beginning to the end. And, and to find your own style, it's about knowing, I think, who you are, at least trying to discover who you are. Um, it's it's about going inside, not going outside often. Yeah. Again, enjoying yourself is part of that, right? Like, who am I? Yeah. What I, but um, uh, the comic book uh, uh, artist, writer, um, Will Eisner, said that style is is the thing that emerges as a result of how you solve problems. Yeah. Which I find really interesting. And my example of that is there's an artist named Brian Stelfreeze, an illustrator who does comics. And he said that when he was younger, he couldn't draw people. He was really good at drawing machinery, but he couldn't draw people. Then he started thinking about people as machinery. Yeah. And then he could draw them. If you look at his people, they don't look like machinery. Yeah. But they do have a very specific style because that underneath it for him, it, their machinery. Hmm. And so um, I have seen that that's one place that style comes from. So there is a way that one artist, artist draws hands to make it that they can do it and they and they can't do it the way somebody else does it or, you know, and so that becomes their style. And I remember uh, I had a friend we were starting off together and he wanted to be a, um, comic book artist he works at Pixar now but he wanted to be a comic book artist and we were both trying to break in and I remember he could always draw pretty well and I remember younger artists looking at his things or even artists his age and they would say oh I really like your style your style's amazing and one day he said I have no idea what they're talking about 
He said, I don't see my style. I'm just trying to draw the best way I know how. I'm just, you know, drawing what I see and doing it the best way I know how. I can't see my style. And he said, when I try to do my style, I can't draw. Yeah, you become too self-conscious. Yeah. And so uh, I think there's something about being younger or less experienced where um, the process part of it, the part that's underneath is almost impossible to see. So what you can see is the style on top. You don't know there's a cake under there. You're so enamored of the frosting. You're like, well, and you just think it's all frosting. It's, it's you know, it's like, no. There's a cake under there. Um, and I think it's impossible to see the cake. Um, you know, I tell people all the time to read interviews if they want to be a screenwriter or a director, read interviews with old directors and, and writers because, uh, first of all, I think they had a different way of thinking about it than, than people now. But the other thing is, I'm like, don't look at what Hitchcock did. Figure out how Hitchcock thought. If you figure out how we thought, then you can start to think about how we solve problems. And if you, I, I've used Hitchcock's way of solving problems for stuff that no one would ever think was Hitchcock inspired stuff. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm taking the theory and applying it differently to some other, to solve some other problem. But because I have some idea about how we thought, I can use that and borrow that instead of taking the exact shot from here or there. Um, which I find people often do. Like, I'm inspired by Hitchcock. I stole this shot. <laughs> you know, like, well, that's not the same thing. Why did Hitchcock make that choice? Yeah. Um, then you can start to guess. You're probably going to be wrong. It doesn't matter. You can start to guess what would Hitchcock do if he were here now, right? He might make this decision. You might be wrong. But if you're thinking about the problem-solving aspect of it versus the style aspect of it, you're going to get, um, I think a better result. Um, so I just think that that emphasis on style is just a, is a youthful thing because you don't understand there's a whole cake underneath that frosting. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And also, um, uh, Sometimes it's going through the process of trying to figure out what your style is that you start to realize, you start to understand your process a little better. Uh, you're trying out all these different techniques. And you start realizing, well, the running theme in all of this stuff is, is really how I feel when I'm drawing this. Or, that it's not really about the technique that you're using, you're stealing uh, something from something that you're inspired by. It's right. really about, about how you're feeling. And is there a point for you? I remember an interview with Chuck Jones where he talked about this and he said, he goes, look, I'm to the point now where I can draw, um, pretty much anything I can think of. Like I can draw now, like I've done that. I did all my drawings, now I can draw. And the first thing you're learning how to do is how to draw. Because, but now the challenge is what to draw, right? <laughs> right? That's the bigger thing. The best answers are always in the why, not the how. 
why use this style versus that one? Why use this color? Why draw it this way versus that way? Why is a better question than how? And young people always want to know how. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, but why is a, is a much deeper question? The how you can just Google. Like, the how yeah. is, how do, how, how, how do I make my oils act a certain way? Or, like, uh, like, how do I paint with wash or whatever? All that you can research. Right. The why, that, that requires um, your own personal thinking process. Yeah. And what are the mistakes you see or the pitfalls or the, the warning signs when you, when you're talking to people or, you know, younger people or, or, um, beginners, um, are there any pitfalls that you see that, that are common? Well, I see a lot of people trying to get into Disney or in animation in general. Oh and, yeah. Um, that's not the pitfall, but the pitfall is that their portfolios all look like um, Disney drawings, or like they're trying to be Disney. Like they, there's nothing very. Um, no, I know what you mean. Uh, personal or. Uh, a lot of people try to draw like your dad. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of those people are sending portfolios away or something like that, and um, and I, I just feel like that's not that's not what is going to be showing off who they are. <laughs> right. They're like trying to focus on, on drawing a specific way. That's that's probably the biggest pitfall that I see. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is kind of getting bogged down with um, by uh, an assignment and feeling like oh, I have to have um, an environment piece and it has to be an environment with buildings and trees. Or I have to show that I can, and all those things are great to be able to show. But when you look at a portfolio and you can feel like this person has forced themselves to do that rather than let themselves have that um that back and forth conversation in the brain between the judgmental and the and the creative and just it's when they don't find the enjoyment in it that that it really comes through it's like okay well i've like ticked off all these boxes i have my character to design <laughs> right and then the, i've got the environment piece and this and like, okay, yeah, that's, that's great like that's what we need or that's what people need in visual development is but uh, you completely lost yourself right yes i i there's a a comic book artist uh, named john Byrne, and john Byrne said he used to hate drawing environments he just hate would hate he hated it so he didn't do them or he would kind of sketch them in then he thought i can't let this beat me um which i i've noticed with people who are good that they they are able to spot their weaknesses and they don't run from them they run towards them and say well i got to tackle that because that limits what i can do right 
And so they'll run right at them. And so he started drawing environments because he, he forced himself to do it. But then he found, he found out how much he enjoyed it. And he's like, it's one of my favorite things to do now are environments. And what's interesting about that is he uses the, uses them in the storytelling. That way of treating environments. That's, that's how I have been able to get into environments too, is, is not seeing it as like, I got to draw these architecture buildings. I mean, for somebody who loves architecture, drawing off, that would be uh, an amazing thing. But for me, who really, uh, a lot of times I don't, my way into it is to figure out, well, what, what does that environment, what is that environment trying to say? Yeah. And like, what, what part in the story, like in the story, what does it mean? Right. And how is it going to affect what the overall narrative is going to be? And then mm-hmm. that's, that's like interesting to me. And sure. then I'm really into it and I can spend hours on it. Sure. I um Yeah. I don't like it when somebody says, um, and maybe you'll change my mind on this too, but I don't like it when people say, um, the, the city was like a character in the story or the sets were like a character in the story. I don't like that. Characters are characters. But what I think they mean to say, what I think they're saying is that it mattered. Yeah. Right? That it had something to do with the story. It wasn't just the setting. It mattered. But I think that's what it should do anyway. So, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like, oh, you know, there's a great thing in um, in 12 Angry Men where um, when uh, Sidney Sydney Lumet was directing that movie, he had a what he called a lens strategy. And so as these people, these men are in this room um, debating this case, he starts with a wide lens. So the room is full and there's lots of space. As things get more tense throughout the movie, he changes lenses so the room shrinks. So there's less space. You can't notice it, you just feel it, you know? But that's an example of, well, he's trying to tell a story here and he wants you to feel a certain way and that's why it is the way it is, not because he wanted to use this lens or that lens or he wanted to do this kind of lighting or that kind of lighting. What does the story need? How am I serving it? you know, I, I just think that often that is the height of um, that's where all the good ideas come from, I find, is from the inside, from realizing that Bert's a boring puppet and going with it. <laughs> yeah. R- right. That's where the good ideas seem to come from. Um, it's almost like you have to surrender to the peace. And until you can do that, you're not going to do, I don't think, the best work you um, and you sound like that's exactly what you do. You surrender to the piece. The piece is this. The piece wants to be this. When I when I'm doing something successful, like this. yes. And I'm not. It. it uh, I bang my head against the wall for a long time. Yeah. And and that banging your head against the wall is is that the uh, the root process? The rooting. The is that what you think that is, or is that you? Well, if I'm only banging my head against the wall, and I'm not getting anywhere that is the roots dying not trying okay. to 
and just going against the wall. I'm like, oh, there's water. <laughs> but it's when I'm actually finding, like, coming up with new ideas and like, oh, yeah, oh, this would work, this would work. Yeah. That's that's when like the root thing is going on. That's magical. It is, isn't it? Yeah, and I just feel like that's what's really cool about story in general is that it's that process is so a part of it is that it, it just it kind of winds and it integrates one one idea from a previous um part of the story and uh there's just so much um a good story really kind of just flows. Flows yeah. that. Um, yeah. There's um, uh, Gary Ross, who um, I, I think is an amazing writer and director. And um, Gary Gary Ross, um, I have a an interview with him that it's hard to find, but I I, I have it, and and he he's talking about. Uh, kind of the stuff that I teach. So he talks about three-act structure and he talks about that stuff, but he's like, eh, I don't think about that stuff. Now, if you look at his work, it's so well-structured. Like, I just think it's close to being instinctual for him to follow that. So he doesn't pay attention to that. But what he does pay attention to, he said, is connective tissue. How does all of this work together? How, what is the connective tissue? And that's what he focuses on. And I started going, okay, I got the three X structure thing down. I can do that. I'm going to start thinking about the connective tissue. And it, it made my work better. It raised my work up a notch to think of it that way. How does it all connect? Yeah. That's where it feels magical. Yeah. It's just like these two completely unrelated parts just coming together and making sense together. Right. Yeah. Um, and and it is and, and the problem is too. It's interesting that you use the word magical, and this is why I think there is a component of alchemy. I always say there's alchemy that um, something happens when you have all of the right ingredients in the right proportions. Magic happens. When you, you know, if there's a story, an old story, and there's somebody casting a spell, they have their recipes. And even for magic, there's a recipe. I got to have this much wolf's mane. I got to have this much eye of newt. I got to have this much whatever. But it's still the right ingredients in the right proportions that make the magic happen. And I think that's true. Um. You know, when Frank Capra said, he said about it's, it's a Wonderful Life, he said, there's more in it than we put in it. I don't know how that happened. Um, Frank Oz said he doesn't know why his characters come alive. He doesn't know how that happens. Um, but I think he does know how it happens. Uh, he doesn't want to know. He, he finds that um, blocks the process for him. But it, it, I think it is all the right ingredients in the right proportions. And he, I know, digs deep into himself in order to 
Um, he, it's like you, so you, you borrow a piece of your soul and you put it in the thing. Yeah. And I think that's the magic part. And, and the only way you do that is to get out of the way and let the thing be what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And then it is magic. I can't explain it, but that's what happens. Um, and, and there are some people who can do that over and over and over again because they're willing to go to that place. And there are some people who do it once, maybe twice, and can't seem to do it because they, they get stuck then on the surface and don't go deep enough again. Um, and sometimes it requires, at least in the writing process, that you go very, very deep. Do you feel that same way about uh, the visual component, that sometimes you have to go deep? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like I like the projects where I'm required to go deep. And and when you say go deep, what do you mean? Well or, uh, when I say go deep, what do you how do you interpret that? Well maybe I should say that. When you say go deep I mean I guess it all just kind of goes back to like what is like connecting all of us as humanity. Like um like what it feels to me, but how that relates to what I've observed in in the real world as well. Um, just thinking about Rapunzel and um, thinking about how I really enjoyed going deep, as you say, in researching how she would spend her day. And, um, and how I felt that was, it, it touched me personally, but also, um, it was also an observation of how not just me living my everyday life and interpreting that into Rapunzel, but seeing that other people could relate to it as well and the, the observation of life around mm -hmm. um, rather than just seeing it as like, Oh, I've got to design a style for the murals and a technique that I'm going to put on the walls. Right. Like, that sounds so boring. Like, <laughs> uh, but like once I start thinking about, well, why does she do it this way? And what does she do during the day? And what are the things that really scare her? And those of things that's like, that's interesting to me. And that's what I think is, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, uh, well, again, you, you just talked about why well, you said why you said why yeah. again, um, why is she doing, you know, I think that again, that gives you better answers. Well, why? I think that the word why also just opens so many doors because there's never an answer to why. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. Kids saying why, 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 and the parents. Are, uh, <laughs> it just opens more and more and more possibilities. Whereas how, there's a definite answer to that, and you come to the end and you're done. Right. And that's a very practical way of living life. Right. Um, but uh, life isn't just all about practicality. Right. And why can change. You might have one why at one age and another why at a different, you know, why changes? How does it change? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. right. You yeah, know, I mean, maybe the technology changes, but 
yeah, I don't even know if that's true. You know, it's it's funny. I remember having a, a, an argument uh, with, uh, and this argument continues, but it, it's shifted. There was a time when, uh, in comic books, um, comic books were in this weird time where nobody was buying them. Uh, there had been a big crash, and, and uh, you know, there was a big bubble, and then the bubble burst. And nobody was buying comics, and the comics that were being produced were terrible. But people in the industry started blaming technology. They started saying, well, pe people can play video games and people can do this and they can do that. And kids don't want to read because these other things are more exciting. And I said, things don't change. People want a good story and we're not giving it to them. Give them good stories and they'll come back. Now, you know, you're talking about the technology, blah, 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 blah. Along comes Harry Potter. Kids are reading those books. They're as thick as they can be. Yeah. You know, there's not really any illustrations to speak of. There's some spot illustrations, but it's not a comic book. Yeah. Um, it's not a video game. You can't interact with it. You can't, you know, it's not a movie. It's a book. And kids were eating it up. Yeah. Because they were enjoying the story and the world they were in. Yeah. I hear the same thing now. Um, I mean pre-COVID, oh, people aren't going to the movies anymore because they can stay home and they can watch, you know, this or that. It's like, you know, the movies haven't been that good. Why don't we just cop to that, right? <laughs> and make better stuff um, instead of blaming the technology. You know, so I, I think that things don't change as much as we think. Um, and, and technology, in a way, blinds us to the way that they are the same. That's so true. Yeah. You know, so um, it's funny, like with TV, when TV showed up, the studios were, they couldn't, it's like you can watch, you can sit home and you can watch stuff on your own. Like you can't, you don't have to go to the movies. And they thought it would kill the movie business. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think Walt Disney was the first person that, that said, can't we make TV? <laughs> like, 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 we we have a back lot and we have costumes. Can't we just make TV? Why are we fighting this? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, and he, and he still had a thriving movie business and, you know, it, it didn't kill, the th you know, so we always, there's always a new technology and it comes along and we think it's all different and um, people don't make their peace with it. They fight with it. They try to bend to it. Um, and it always seems to be that people are drawn to the same things over and over again. So nobody stopped going to the movies when TV showed up and nobody, you know, it's like, no, they went to the movies and they watched TV so yeah. they could do both things, but they could coexist. And so I think that um, I don't pay much attention to technology <laughs> because I think it's an illusion. And, um, and how you make a good story was the same a thousand years ago as it is right now. Yeah. Wait, have I talked to you about Sapiens yet? Did I ask you? If yeah, yeah. I was. I started to read it, and then I didn't finish reading it because that's my way. But it had nothing. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the book. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, yes, I was reading Sapiens, uh, and I got. I think I got about halfway through, and then I 
the part of the problem is I think I was writing and when I'm writing, I can't read and I'll stop reading Yeah, and I might not pick that book up again. I think it was something like that. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a thick book. Yeah. But, um, I'll finish it. <laughs> you should, because it really, I mean, reading it, it really reminded me of you and your whole philosophy of like the importance of storytelling for humanity. And because you've all talks about, um, in the book, he talks about how he believes that um, what has really created society has been our um, ability to gather around stories, myths, which turn into religions, which turn into cultures. And it's from that ability to tell stories that we have become humans and, and, well, I mean, I, yeah i think that's definitely true what we are and we are yeah. all the different technologies that have existed the one thing that has remained the same is this ability to connect your story yep the story that you tell yourself the story that you tell yourself about the community that you live in about the country that you're a part of um yeah i think that's definitely i do i do believe that i do think it it is Yeah, it's well, it's universally human, and there must be a reason for that, right? There's no culture without stories, and there must be a reason yeah. for that. Um, otherwise, some people would have it, and some people wouldn't, you know? Um, so, yeah, we may, we may express things differently, but, but stories are strangely universal in that it doesn't matter what culture they're from. If they're very human, you'll connect. It doesn't matter when they're from. If they're human, you'll connect. Um, it, it doesn't matter what language they're in. A lot of stories that we still tell were written in languages that we don't even speak anymore, that nobody speaks, <laughs> you know? Um, but the stories remain. Um, I think that's really fascinating that, um, and there are even stories, there are even gods that no one worships anymore. And we have those stories, right? <laughs> like, like the stories outlived those gods. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's so true. And because ultimately those gods really had, uh, they played an important role in in people's lives. Yeah. That was why they existed and that's why they continue to exist today. Yeah. Because of the the basic fears and desires that we have as humans. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, I'll finish the book. That's my promise to me. That's the Brian McDonald guarantee. So, 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 so I, I, I will finish the book. Um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that came to mind or that I maybe rudely interrupted you when you were uh, about to make a point? Is there anything um, that we're leaving on the table about uh, – the creative process about your process about what you've learned from other people. Maybe that's a good one. What have you learned from other people about like people, you know, here's my problem has been that I've almost always worked in a vacuum that I never get. Rarely have I been in a group where I'm creating. I'm just all by myself um, creating. And I, I always envied my friends who were at Disney or who were at Pixar or who were at, at ILM 
because they were surrounded by people like them who had different skill sets and they could, and everybody, I don't know what this is. I don't know if this was true when you were at Disney. Every artist I know thinks the artist next to them is better. And like, I suck and they are great. It's this really interesting thing. But what happens is you all have different strengths and weaknesses and you, and I, and my friends who write on TV, I've seen this too, where they learn from the older writers and, you know, and I've, I've had to learn all this stuff in a vacuum. What have you learned in environments like that? And maybe it was even an art school. I don't know from other creative people about, um, about how, how to work or how not to work or how to think or how not to think. Is there anything there? I would say the thing that I took away the most from working at Disney was just seeing and learning to appreciate that everybody has their own unique way of uh, having a process. Like everybody has a, a process that is completely their own. Um, there might be one person that's a lot more into story, kind of like me, or like really into like the why and stuff. But then there's other people who are really much more about the how, and and we need that too mm-hmm. in specific areas of the of the process. And and just realizing that um, everybody has their own thing, and and comparing myself really just gives way to that like um, judgmental person in my head that really doesn't help at all. Um, but uh, learning to, to accept that, oh, I'm, I'm different from these people and that's okay. And, and that can be celebrated. Yeah, I think that that's, that's probably what I learned the most when I was working at Disney. And, and now today, I'm working at DreamWorks right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so just kind of being reminded of that again. Um, yeah, that everybody has their own way of working. And also the COVID corona thing, like um, realizing that we're all in this together. And no person, as much as we thought that we were all separated and we could do our thing, um, and that perhaps we weren't reliant on on somebody on the other side of the country or somebody in a different um, social economic thing from us. Like we're actually very much connected, and we're like if one person gets sick, we're all going to get sick, and we have to really be be conscious of this. And 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 just kind of having like a a new appreciation for wow all of our journeys are, we might, they might be separate, but they're also, also very much entwined. Um, that's, that's kind of a good thing to remember when you're working on a large project, like a movie. Mm-hmm. Right. That it's, yeah, that you're, you're a piece of a whole. Yeah. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, <laughs> I love uh, I love talking with you. It's it's one of my favorite things. You're one of my favorite people to talk to in, on on the planet, um, and uh, and I, I I I hope that we just talk one day and don't have a show. You know, yeah. You know, just talk because we don't really do that very much. But um, um, you know, uh, 
I always learn something. You, you changed my mind about the word creativity. Um, uh, so I, I really appreciate that. I like to have my mind changed. I think people think I don't, but, but I actually do uh, because I'm just in this to learn. Um, and I, I do feel like I learned something. And um, I, I think this will be invaluable to uh, people who want to uh, follow in your footsteps. Because I know you have a lot of people that, that do want to do that. And it's, it's always hard to hear that about yourself. At least it is for me. But, well, but it's I, true. You're that and you're like, no, don't follow. Just follow in your own footsteps. That, that, no, don't. <laughs> but that's, but that's, the, that's, they're going to follow that advice then. Right, right, right. That's still following in your footsteps, yeah. right? You know, you know. Um, and sometimes you need somebody to, you need somebody to follow for a while. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Just uh, know that it's okay to stumble yeah. or whatever. Yeah, but I think some for, like, oh, I'll be that. You know, it's, sometimes it takes a. You know, uh, I've told this story before, but there was a guy who um, played in a band with Miles Davis. And this guy grew up on Miles Davis and then found himself, you know, in Miles Davis's band. And uh, one day he got the courage finally to say to him, you know, when I was a kid, I used to uh, uh, listen to your records and try to play just like you. I try to play the trumpet just like you. And I would listen. I'd play along. And Miles just sort of uh, took it in. And then he said, yeah, sometimes it takes a long time to sound like yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's true. So, you know, understand that you have to sound like yourself eventually, but I think it's okay to try to sound like Miles for a while. Yeah. 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 A lot from other people. Yeah. Yeah. You do. So, you know, um, and actually when it's a lot of different people, styles sort of emerge from that too. All of your influences. So going back to the style thing. But anyway, I was trying to sign off and we started another conversation. So, so <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Claire. I hope we uh, talk again soon. I'm glad that your uh, your life is is doing this and going up. And uh, you went through the uh, the bad times and then, of course, then the COVID hit. But I'm glad, <laughs> but, 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 but I'm glad uh, everything seems to be good and, and the kids are good. And, uh, and say hi to your parents. And uh, I'll, I hope I talk to you soon. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, nice seeing you, Brian. Bye. Thanks for watching. You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft is hosted by Brian McDonald and produced in Seattle, Washington by Belief Agency.